our featured guest today, um, Chief Justice Mary Jane Tice. Uh, has an incredibly impressive background that many of you know and are familiar with. Um, prior to her role as Chief Justice, she served at every level of the, ju- of the judiciary in the state of Illinois with an impeccable credentials all along the way. Um, what I, I appreciate reading through her bio and uh, that you can find online uh, is that she's been appointed you know, by her predecessors and, and by other judges. She's been elected um, by voters. She's been acknowledged and, and selected by her peers to lead various organizations, uh, you know, professional organizations, uh, and receive awards from all those organizations. So that's really telling that she's, she's respected, right? I mean, if you're elected, you're appointed, you're, all these different people that, that know their business uh, and, and think of this woman as someone that needs to be uh, honored and, and, and continue on in, in this amazing uh, state of Illinois. And it's, uh, that, that respect is, is pretty difficult to achieve over so many years in such a great career. So uh, further proof of that respect is the fact that the entire Supreme Court of the state of Illinois is with us today. Um, we, we took a nice photo so that we know it's so rare to have all of you in the room. So if you could please stand um, and, and, and just wave again for a moment. Uh, thank you to the Supreme Court of the state of Illinois. Pretty neat to have you all at City Club um, and, and an acknowledgement of your respect uh, for the Chief Justice. Now, with all these accolades and all that respect um, and knowing Justice Tice, uh, I, I bet, we, we don't bet at City Club, by the way, uh, but I would bet that, that she would probably say her you know, proudest accomplishment and, and her proudest um, achievement is her family. And, and you saw Jack, her son here, daughter Claire, their seven grandchildren, um, and, I, and I bet you she may recognize her husband, John. John, thank you for being here with us. So with, with all of that, uh, the City Club is incredibly honored uh, to welcome the Illinois Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice, Mary Jane Tice. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Um, thank you. I got the reference about being a person for others. That's about St. Ignatius and Loyola. Uh, I just want you to know that when I was in high school, I wasn't allowed to go to St. Ignatius College Prep. They didn't let women in back in those days. But uh, I've been fortunate enough to not only have both my children attend there, but good news, my eighth grade twins are starting in the fall. So thank you very much, family of people for others. So thank you very much for inviting all of us here, and um, I do want to individually recognize my colleagues, and I will do that in order of seniority, because that's how we live. We sit at the table in that way, we, um, our rooms are assigned that way, we're assigned cases, everything in our world is seniority, so I'd like, in order of seniority, to introduce you to my colleagues. Justice P. Scott Neville. from the 1st District here in Cook County, Uh, Justice David Overstreet from the 5th District. He calls it the lower 48 counties uh, in the state of Illinois. Uh, Justice Lisa Holder-White from the 4th District. Justice Joy Cunningham from the 1st District here in Cook County. Justice Elizabeth Ratchford from the 2nd District, the northern part of the state. 
and Justice Mary Kay O'Brien from the central part of our state. Thank you all for being here. I'd like to begin by recognizing and, and telling all of you that the Supreme Court of Illinois is a very healthy organization. And I say that because uh, when you have a multi-member decision bodies, um, it can be very difficult if there isn't a basis of respect among the members. In our court, there is deep sense of collegiality. Collegiality in the sense of not just being pals, but understanding the roles that we have and the importance of respect among each one of us. Now, what you might know, some of you might know this, we're the only state in the country where the members of the Supreme Court live together. When we're in Springfield for term, we have seven rooms on the top floor of the courthouse, and that's where we live. We have a communal dining table. We have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. That's a lot of togetherness. <laughs> but it brings us to a place where we can not only know each other, respect each other, but also to support each other in the incredible work that we're called upon to do. Not only do we decide cases of great import to the state of Illinois. Under our Constitution, the Supreme Court is uh, charged with the administration and supervision of all of the courts in our state. We're charged with it, nothing less than the uh, administration of justice. It's an incredible responsibility that we share and that we support each other because of that understanding. And this is a moment in our time where the courts are seen as taking a really important role. We hear talk of the bulwark of democracy, protection of people's rights, defender of the rule of law. The courts certainly play those roles in our government. But we also hear this, a declining lack of trust and confidence in our courts. So, for example, the National Center for State Courts every year does a survey across the country and asks the question of people, do you have confidence in certain institutions? So they'll ask that question about the governor or the United States Supreme Court or state legislators, federal courts, and state courts. They just published their 2023 survey. Here's the good news. Of all of those institutions, the institution that had the highest level of trust and confidence were the state courts. Here's the bad news. The percentage of people who said they had trust in the courts was 61%. If you were taking a test, my friends at Loyola, that's a D minus. That's a D minus. And that's important, and it, it affects real-life uh, society here and in our state. Researchers have studied the issue of why do people obey court orders? Why do people obey laws for about 30 years? Over and over, the same research comes up with the same answer. People are willing to accept what happens to them in court, win or lose, if they believe they've been treated fairly. So the perception of fairness is the strongest indicator about people following the law. We recognize that in this moment, as lack of trust and confidence in the courts drops, our society is challenged then when people don't trust our courts. Now, I've got a cool PowerPoint, I hope. 
There you go. Um, our Constitution requires that the um, uh, all the judges in the state of Illinois uh, abide by a judicial code of conduct, an ethics conduct. And I want you to know from the very beginning, in Illinois, the code of judicial conduct has um, uh, applied to every single judge in the state, including members of the Supreme Court. Now, this... These rules have recently been amended and kind of updated with some language, but this is the core of judicial ethics, as you see. A judge shall act at all times in a manner that promotes public confidence in the independence, integrity, and impartiality of the judiciary. All of the rules, all of the ethical rules flow from this idea. So, thank you to the City Club for inviting me to come here today so I can spend some time talking about the third branch of government, the judicial branch, talking to you, the leaders of our community, about what courts do, what your courts do in the state. There probably is no other more pressing issue for our courts right now than issues about access to justice. So I'm sure if all of you think about what a courts look like. You're picturing a judge, wise judge, sitting up high and, and two lawyers arguing and the judge is going to listen to them both and make a decision based on what the two lawyers say. That is not what the courts, our civil courts, look like in the state of Illinois. This is a chart of the funding that the courts receive, the third branch of government receives from the legislature. This is about 1.1% of the entire state budget. So what you can see over here on, on the blue section are judicial salaries. So the legislature chooses how many judges, they choose their salaries, that's just a math problem. Over here in the yellow or kind of greenish area there, um, those are probation officers' salaries. In Illinois, each county decides if they're going to have a probation department and decide how many officers and how much they're going to be paid. And then the statute requires that the Supreme Court reimburse the counties for the salaries of the probation officers. So this is basically a pass-through um, between the legislature and the counties about probation. Another big chunk up there is the Office of Statewide Pretrial Services, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, too. But that, too, is a function of the court. Then you have, down here, non-judicial salaries, and up there, operations. So let me tell you what that means. That's the amount of money received from the legislature for the Supreme Court, the Appellate Court, and the Administrative Office of the Illinois Courts. The Constitution created that office to assist the Supreme Court in the administration of justice. But that's not where people go to court. That's not where regular people engage with the court system. They don't go to the appellate court. They don't go to the Supreme Court. What you're missing here, what we're not seeing here, are all of the trial courts in our state. They are not funded by the legislature. They function on the good graces of each one of the county boards of the 102 counties in the state of Illinois. So what that means is that our system, our system of justice in Illinois, is made up of a patchwork. We have some places that are well-funded and many places that are not. And so my colleagues and I, who are charged with the administration of justice across the state, we have to be looking for statewide solutions to problems where especially 
some counties are unable or unwilling to fund the court system. So that's where I want to move on to the next issue about access to justice. Uh, this idea of what do the courts really look like? In civil courts in the state of Illinois, about 75% of the cases, at least one party doesn't have a lawyer. They come to court alone, untrained. Some cases, there's what we call asymmetrical litigation. There's a, a person, a lawyer on one side who's very talented, knows an area of law, and the person on the other side is alone. In our family courts, that's where we see the highest percentage of cases where neither side has a lawyer. Now, this is really challenging. It's challenging to our court system because we are created as an adversarial system. We're built for that idea of lawyers debating issues of law. All of our rules, our procedures, our precedent are based on that idea, but that is not how our civil courts function today. So about 10 years ago, the Illinois Supreme Court created the Access to Justice Commission and the Access to Justice Division of the Administrative Office, and they have done remarkable work. Remember, too, that part of being a lawyer is more than just litigation. We talk about lawyers being attorneys and counselors at law. When people come to our courts without a counselor, um, they have no one there to explain to them what is happening to them. They have no one to help them through these moments of crisis. I think it really affects the quality of the judgment that people have about confidence in our courts. So we've tried to address some of these things, and the Access to Justice Commission has done remarkable work. I'm a big fan of the website, atjil.org. You go there, and the first thing it says is, can we help you? Click here if you want to start a case. There are 12 different uniform forms for people to fill out in six different languages. Do you want to respond to a case? Click. Here are all these forms to help you do that. There are videos of how to e-file. There are videos about how to appeal your case. And then there are resources that are available all over the state. Helped us in courthouses. Helped us in libraries. And my very favorite, the Illinois um, Courts Help. On every summons, if you ever come to call the court, on the back, it says, if you have any questions, call here. And if you call that number, there are real live human beings who will spend as much time as you need on the phone explaining to you what the process is. We have justice corps workers. They stand at the front door of courthouses and they say, may I help you? Kind of like the old days with Marshall Fields, you know, <laughs> or maybe Neiman Marcus. Can I help you? And all of these people are very early on say, we are not lawyers. We are not here to give you legal advice. We are here so that you can work your way through our court system without an attorney and counselor of law, because that's what our civil courts look like. On the other side of the coin, pre-pandemic, uh, we saw a, a drop in civil filings of about 40%. For some reason, and we can probably think of some, people were not, are not coming to our courts even though they have real serious legal issues. People are cheated. People's rights are denied them. And they don't come to our courts. We think about courts sometimes as places where people can come to resolve their disputes peaceably. 
So what happens when people feel like they have no place to go once they've been hurt? There's no place for them to have their uh, wrongs righted. So our court is very concerned with this side of the coin, the where is the plaintiff's part of the discussion. And We've just uh, created a committee to, of the, some of the top lawyers in our profession to look at our court system and ask the questions, are we serving the people of our state? Are we meeting their unmet legal needs? Now, I've been talking about civil cases because there's not a constitutional right to civil, a counsel in civil cases. But for over 60 years, in fact, last year it was the 60th anniversary, um, the United States uh, Supreme Court has guaranteed the right to counsel in every criminal case. We're very proud of that. But when we've looked at our state, up until last year, in 59 of our counties, there was no full-time public defender. In one county, the county board did appropriate money for a full-time public defender, but her entire operating budget was $3,500 a year. She bought her own yellow pads. Last year, the legislature funded $10 million for a public defender fund to hire lawyers to provide services. And yes, uh, public defender Clark in White County now can pay for legal pads through the state's money. Um, but this is dramatic. This is the kind of um, uh, situation that uh, is clearly a failure of the state's promise um, uh, under Gideon versus Wainwright. So the court created a uh, task force, an indigent criminal task force, to address this problem so that we can um, look for long-term, sustainable ways to provide the constitutional rights that our people are guaranteed. The reason I think a lot of these issues in the criminal world came to, to bear is because of the recent passage of the Safety Act. Okay? Here's the deal. It's not called the Safety Act. Okay? I'm giving you an inside scoop here, guys. It's not called the Safety Act. It's not called the Pretrial, Service, uh, Pretrial Fairness Act. Those words don't appear in this huge piece of litigation. It's boringly titled Public Acts 101-652, 102-1104. You actually hear lawyers talking like that because that's not what... That this is really the name of the statute. But, but we know that this was a huge change in Illinois. And this is not new for Illinois. In 1964, we were the first state to abolish the use of bail bondsmen. That practice is still there in many states, but we have been on the forefront of reform for all of these years. The key, of course, was abolishing cash bail. And today, the determining factor of whether someone is detained or released during uh, pretrial hearings is not wealth, but dangerousness? Is there a risk of harm? That's, those are the factors that the statute creates for the courts to make that determination. Another thing we discovered as we started to prepare for this big change, we created an implementation task force to kind of look at what does this pretrial look like all around our state. And for a long time, we did a lot of work doing forms and standing orders and that kind of thing. But we also learned something else. About 30 years ago, the legislature passed a bill creating, requiring every county to have a pretrial service 
officers. And those are the people who will interview an arrestee and then uh, assist the trial court in making a good decision and perhaps being available to supervise someone who's released. Even though that statute's been around for about 30 years, what we learned was in over 70 counties of the 102 counties in Illinois, there were no pretrial officers. And so the court stepped up, and as you saw earlier on that pie chart, through the court's budget, there now is a statewide pretrial service office. Today, in every single county, there are pretrial service officers doing what the statute requires them to do. It's taken a huge amount of work to get here, believe me. Um, but we're very proud of the work that's been done and where we are now. Uh, one other piece that uh, uh, of the Safety Act, even though it's not called that, is that it provided a right to appeal in every case. Well, in every pretrial case. So what we found is a dramatic increase in appeals. For example, in 2022, there were about 5,000 appeals of every sort, you know, medical malpractice and commercial litigation and everything else. In the first five months in this new world, as of Friday, uh, there were 1,899 appeals from pretrial hearings. What you can see is those appeals are swamping all of the other cases. And so the court has assigned two new trial judges, two trial judges to become appellate court judges to hear these cases, and has created another task force to look at solutions long term. And we look forward to that. One place that's lagging since the adoption of the Safety Act is data. We've got to know if this is working. The public needs to know, and we need to know, so that we can allocate resources appropriately. Why is this difficult? I think you'll get a pattern of what I'm saying here. Across the state, case management systems are funded by each county. In DuPage, they have the Tesla version. In Putnam, the Mini Cooper version. They don't talk to each other. We've spent great deal of time and money uh, to try to find a way to bring all of this together so the people of the state of Illinois can know what their courts are doing. And I promise you, this is one of the highest priorities we have. But of course, oh, our court website, one last thing, you can find all of the opinions of the courts or the decisions the courts have made on pretrial cases. And if you're interested, you can read some of those and really get a flavor for what is happening in our courts all across the state. And there are some data points there too. Um, but we need to get consistent, reliable data as quickly as we can. Okay, so, Pretrial is a big deal, and we've been talking about the Safety Act, Pretrial Fairness Act, Public Act, whatever those numbers are. Um, that's kind of a hot topic today. Uh, but, but the fact is that the trial courts in our state are the people's courts, and that's where most people's contact with our justice system happens. The people's court also brings people's problems. And so it's the court all of our courts, that are charged with protecting vulnerable people. A really important issue right now is mental health issues in our courts. It's estimated that about 70% of the people in the criminal justice system have a diagnosable mental health or behavioral health issue. There are people in our state who have been found mentally ill who are in county jails because the state doesn't have enough beds for them to be in state 
hospitals. So I'm very proud to say Illinois has been on the forefront of this issue all across the country. We've created within the administrative office a specific unit, a division, to deal with issues of mental health. And through that work, we've been able to secure a, a grant of $550,000 from the federal government, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, to just focus on issues of mental health in our courts. As I say, we deal with people with real problems. We deal with people who are vulnerable. An important part of our court system is child protection. Children who have been abused and neglected, and not surprisingly, many of them end up in the juvenile delinquency area of our court system as well. These are people, children, who have uh, no one to stand up for them, except the courts. And so, it, again, our administrative office has created a specific unit for courts, children, and families. And for that unit, we've received a grant from the federal government of $850,000 a year to focus on the needs of children in our court system. Another area of vulnerable people uh, are our guardianship courts, disabled adults, older people who can't take care of their own affairs. They come into our court system and they literally become wards of the court. The court becomes the guardian of these vulnerable people. Usually, the court will appoint a guardian ad litem, someone to be the eyes and ears of the court and to give the court help on what are the best interests of this um, vulnerable person. And so the court has created a commission to look at issues for about uh, specifically elderly people, but, but other vulnerable people as well, and to make sure that these, for example, guardians ad litem at law are well-trained and prepared to take on this important role. And also that we could start to learn more about better outcomes for our wards. Here's another issue. Domestic violence. Do you know that in Cook County, in the Circuit Court of Cook County, there is a courthouse at 555 West Harrison that only hears domestic violence cases. That's the breadth and the size of the issues we're dealing with. And so the court has responded by creating another commission, another committee, to look at specifically issues of domestic violence, to look for ways to serve the needs of people who have been victims of not only domestic violence, but of human trafficking. Now, I can go on. Wait till I tell you about drug treatment courts, alternatives to prosecution, uh, and so many other kinds of problem-solving courts. Um, we are engaged at every moment beyond the decision-making process of our courts in serving the needs of our people. Finally, at the end, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the courts, our Supreme Court, signed an order locking the door of every courthouse in the state. It was terrifying. Here we are. We are the ones to be charged with administering justice. And in this time of crisis in our country and our world, where people are going to be suffering, they're going to have psychotic breaks, they're going to need uh, guardianship, we locked the doors to the courthouses. But very quickly, we learned some really important messages. And there's one specifically I wanted to say. As we learned about 
thought about how do we administer justice in the state, we came to realize that court is not a place. Court is a service. It's a service that we're called upon to be there for people in times of crisis. Our court has a, formed a Illinois Judicial Conference, and the Judicial Conference has formed a wonderful strategic plan, and our court has embraced the vision of that strategic plan. This is how we hope to see ourselves, to be trusted and open to all by being fair, innovative, diverse, and responsive to changing needs. I come here today to say this. The people of the third branch of government, the judicial branch, the pretrial officers, the probation officers, the court clerks, the administrators, the judges, the justices, we are committed to work every day to earn the people's trust. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, especially for those of us who are not in the system one way or another. Um, it, it was very enlightening to understand what goes on on a, on a daily basis there. Uh, as you ended with the pandemic and how the, the, the court the courts were shut down. Were there any innovations that came out of that that might be positive, uh, that, that may be lasting modernizations of the court that you can speak to? And before you answer, does that, if anyone has questions, I have a few. Uh, I'll stand over here and please just wave them and we'll grab them. Thank Absolutely. Uh, just like so many other people and worlds, we learned, so we, we, shut, we signed the order on March 17th of 2020 to shut every courthouse. Um, by that next Monday, and that was a Tuesday, and next Monday, there was a national meeting of courts all across the country, and we learned about remote proceedings. And apparently, places like Alaska and Texas have had those kind of remote proceedings for years. And by the next, I'd say, Wednesday of that week, our courts were open and functioning. So we've learned a lot about remote proceedings. Um, there's the concern, of course, that some people are more savvy with uh, tech than others. But what we've really seen is that it has brought more people into our courts. Today, in cases that are, you know, status hearings, uh, where it's not a, a huge issue that's going to be resolved by the court, um, most of the cases are heard in a, in a remote way on Zoom. And what's great about that is that people don't have to take a day off work. They don't have to get childcare. They don't have to pay $30 at the parking lot downtown Chicago. Um, we, can, we can function very well in this remote world. Now, there's been worry about whether the um, those screens with those boxes, does that really communicate enough of the gravitas, maybe, of the courts? I mean, when you walk into a courtroom, there are high ceilings and there are pillars. Is that what makes people agree and understand what's, what's happening to them in the courts? We've done a lot of study on that. And what we found is just the opposite. People are thrilled to have the opportunity to have their cases heard in a way that they can fit into the rest of their life. 
So we've done a lot of work on that. We've done a lot of videos trying to explain to people before they come into the courtroom on uh, remote hearings as to what's expected of them. But I'm just convinced that moving forward, we will continue to learn those, use those innovations that we learned about during the pandemic. Um, couple, oh good, we got five minutes, I have three questions. Hopefully there are no more. Um, Ashton Ladd's asking, uh, has there been a law where your interpretation of it has evolved over the years? Um, and if so, what was it? <laughs> you don't have to answer all of these, but I'll just throw it out there. What was it and what influenced this evolution? Um, I would say, first of all, I certainly am not going to comment on any case pending. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on any cases that we've already decided. One of the expressions that you often hear is the court speaks through its decisions. And in terms of decision-making, that's where I suggest you look. On the other hand, uh, we are here to um, uh, enforce and interpret the uh, laws that are passed by the legislature. And certainly, we've seen dramatic changes in Illinois uh, as to how uh, we look at any number of issues. Um, uh, Interesting, cannabis is a really great example of that. Uh, cannabis is legal in the state of Illinois. Yet we have a whole body of law about searches and seizures, Fourth Amendment law, that all developed in other times when drugs were just the greatest scourge in our society. And so we have uh, many, many cases and thought about that. Suddenly we're having to rethink what does it mean if someone has cannabis that's legal um, on their person, in a car, around children. Uh, very different ideas. But I'm, again, I'm going to say that's not coming from the court. It's coming from the court's obligation to interpret the law as the legislature draws it. Okay. In respecting your request to not get into specific cases, I'm going to take the statement part out of this question uh, from Michael Rizzo and go right to the question. What procedures does the Illinois Supreme Court have in place to review the backgrounds of applicants for judgeships so that people of Illinois may know that judges are qualified for the public trust? So let me tell me a couple things about how judges are selected. Uh, I've been doing a lot of national uh, work lately, and what's really interesting is that each state thinks they have the best system. Uh, but everyone, you should know that other than a few states uh, in New England uh, that are more like the federal model of lifetime appointments, uh, every state across the, uh, the country has some methodology where judges are go before the people to be held accountable. It could be in the original election, it could be in a retention, but everywhere, the sense of accountability, needing to hold judges to be accountable, uh, is, is in every in every state. And of course, in Illinois, uh, our system is such that after uh, a judge has completed a term, uh, six years or ten years, perhaps, the judge goes before the people, and we're the only state in the country where a judge who is putting themselves forward for retention, must receive 61% of the vote. Now picture that in most elections. If you got 61%, it's a, it's a landscape. If you get, we just, uh, judge, just. minus though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, this, one, uh, just five years ago or whatever, one of the justices of our court was defeated in retention. He received 56% of the vote and lost his job. So our system is very much aimed at holding people 
judges accountable. Now, how are judges selected? They're selected two ways. They're appointed by the court. We're the only state in the country where the Supreme Court has the authority to uh, uh, fill vacancies. In every other state, uh, it's the governor, the most political person in the state. Uh, our the founders of our Constitution were really cautious about this and wanted to make sure that it wasn't uh, driven by the partisanship of the governor. In fact, that the court, having the closest understanding of the legal system, would have the ability to um, uh, appoint to vacancies. But then everyone uh, who have been, has been appointed must run for election. Again, accountability by the people. How do people know who their judges are? It's a really great question. I think it's different in different places. I think if I asked some of my constituents from downstate, they would have a different answer than I might here in Cook County. Downstate, people know their judges. People know who they are. Um, people have a sense of the, the kind of demeanor that they have. Cook County is, we often say, perhaps the largest unified court system in the world. Therefore, we have a lot of judges. And therefore, it can be really difficult for people to um, educate themselves, to make a decision about who to vote for for these important roles. In Cook County, at least, we have a very robust system of judicial um, uh, evaluations by the bar associations. Um, I can give a, a plug. Now, there are a lot of ways to do this, but in Justice Watch, a, a um, uh, online uh, group has a great guide that you can go to right now on your phone and find uh, information about every single person who's running. Um, it takes work. Here in Cook County, because of our size, it takes work. But there are resources, and again, I'd say probably the best indicator, in my view, would be how the bar associations evaluate candidates. They're the ones who know what is expected of, of a, a judge who and look into their background as to how they practice as a lawyer and you answered your son's question by the way in that second part so <laughs> sorry to come and put that over there um last question we're one minute over we'll, we'll keep it hopefully quick um in this state of of national affairs there's so many issues that are now being sent from the federal court down to back to the states or down to the states uh how have you navigated this and um and perhaps touch on the fact that Illinois is is blue and, and Cook County blue and a sea of red around us politically? No. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not been listening, my friend? <laughs> Look at us. Look at who we are. We are from elected from all over this state. We are Democrats. We are Republicans. We are women. We are men. We're white. We're black. We represent our entire community. I will tell you proudly that our court does not function in a partisan way. You can look at our cases. Look at our cases. That's not how we decide cases. I've been a judge for 40-some years. I have a lot of judge friends from all over the state. I mean, like genuine friends, people who are really important in my life. I have no idea what party they were elected under. That's not how we function. We don't see blue issues and red issues. That's not how we function. 
Did I explain that to you, Dan? You did. You set you set me up really well for our city club, nonpartisan, non-biased platform that we have here, and we were so honored to share it with you today. Uh, we are right with you on all of that, and um, and I think so many of you who have been to the various programs uh, would agree that we we hearing from people like you in this setting just elevates the conversation. So thank you, Chief Justice Tice, and uh, thank you to all of you for being here. Welcome back to City Club very soon. We've got lots of great programs coming, so we hope to see you all soon. Have a great 70-degree day.